All right, we're going to give ourselves to the study of Scripture. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up to John's Gospel, chapter 8. John chapter 8, it's so good to be together to worship God. If you're a guest with us, it's so good to have you. We're honored that you'd be here with us worshiping. We're walking through this Gospel of John um, each week taking about a chapter. Every now and then we have to jump a little bit further to get done in 16 weeks, but this, um, this morning brings us to John chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. So if you'd follow along as I read, John chapter 8. Verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, Where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, that's a reference to the crucifixion, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. His words are familiar To many of us, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. These words, I am the light of the world. Jesus loves, and we've seen this as we walk through the Gospel of John, he loves to take metaphors, even from nature itself, and press them into the service of teaching about himself, teaching about his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom, and what happens when when his life breaks in on our lives, when we put our trust in Jesus, this is what comes flowing into us. He's using these metaphors from 
nature. And he's been talking about bread, and he's talked about water, and he's talked about wine, and now he talks about light. Word came out just a couple weeks ago, I think it was the end of January, from the National Science Foundation. Science geeks might have known about it if you're here, but word came out, they were releasing new pictures from a brand new telescope that captured images, the highest resolution images of the sun, the surface of the sun. This was groundbreaking. They said this is like Galileo 2.0, like this is gonna launch us into a whole new era. We're gonna be able to forecast space weather now, not just you know, local weather, but space weather because of things that we're learning about the ball of fire that sits at the center of our solar system. The images showed, quote, a pattern of turbulent boiling plasma that covers the entire sun. This will tell you a little bit about me, but I looked at it and I just thought, it looks a lot like Cracker Jacks. It literally looks a ton it, like it's, it's Cracker Jacks. The moon is made of cheese, the sun is made of Cracker Jacks. Um, but here's the thing, Jesus talks about him being the light. You know, if you read a couple of weeks ago when you saw that news come out about the sun and you dug around like I did, dug around kind of into the old things that I had learned in science class about, about the sun, you, you know this, some of this might come back to your mind from, from years past. So if the sun burned out, we wouldn't know it until eight minutes later. And that would have been the last eight minutes of bliss on planet Earth before everything drastically changed, before the end of history, basically, as we know it. Because after that eight minutes, we would be plunged into complete and total darkness. Darkness like we've never seen before. Absolute darkness. Because, right, the, the moon reflects the sun's light. So when the sun goes out, the moon goes out, you lose both night. Both lights go out. In creation, there is zero light. And then, with zero light, there's also zero heat. So there's a dramatic change, like more than Alabama. There is a dramatic change in the temperature. Matter of fact, scientists say in the first 24 hours since the turning off of the sun, the temperature everywhere on planet Earth would be zero in 24 hours. By the end of the year, every place on Earth would be 100 degrees below zero, and it would just keep dropping and dropping, and then it would settle at about 400 degrees below zero, which is basically Minnesota. All over the world <laughs> would be Fargo, North Dakota. Everywhere on earth would feel like that. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, you come to the very last chapter the very last prophet is writing, his name is Malachi, and the last chapter of Malachi is signaling that someone else is going to come. And it's a reference to the coming Messiah, and the metaphor that it uses about when Messiah comes, on the other end of that 400-year darkness, when Messiah comes, Malachi said, he used the metaphor of, of a sunrise. He used the metaphor of light breaking breaking through, the, the breaking of the dawn. Here's what he said. For those who fear the Lord, the sun, the S-U-N, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And he said, here's the effect on those who trust in the Lord, joy. He said, you shall go out leaping with joy like newborn calves from the stall. This this light signals the entrance of joy into the world. It signals the entrance of hope 
why the announcement of Jesus and the, the Christ child at Christmas is glad tidings, good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. The sun is risen with healing in his wings. He's here now. Advent, Messiah has arrived. You know, if you've ever been hungry, you love the part where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If you've ever been thirsty, you love it when Jesus says, I am the living water. Anyone who drinks the water that I have will never be thirsty again. But if you've ever known darkness, Jesus has your attention, your full attention when he says, I am the light of the world. If you've ever looked at your life and thought, how did I get here? How did I get to this place of being completely stuck? If you've ever thought, if there is a God, I'm the last person he would want to know. If you've ever thought that way, hope begins to arise in your heart when you find out that Jesus opens his mouth and he says, you know what I am? I'm light. I'm light that enters into darkness. I'm light that carries brightness and hope with me. Anyone, Jesus promises, the outset of our text, Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a promise that is. And we'll see a little bit about what that means in just a moment, but we have to back up because Jesus comes into our passage in confrontation mode. So he's confronting religious leaders who are known as the Pharisees. You might see there in your Bible, there's a, there's a note about the early manuscripts that that in the earliest manuscripts you didn't have chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, which doesn't mean that it never happened or that it's bogus history. It probably did happen. There's a great likelihood that that event happened, but it wasn't in the original manuscript of John's gospel, so it's not in scripture. It's not scripture history. So that's why they're noting that, which means that for John's original manuscript that he sent out of his gospel, you go right from the end of chapter 7, this this nasty debate that's going on about Jesus and his validity or lack of validity in the Pharisees, and you go right from that where they're saying, do you actually believe this guy? He's a huckster. Like, we don't believe him. Don't you care to find out if your religious leaders believe that he's actually of the truth? That's what's happening at the end of chapter 7, and it's into that context that Jesus says, chapter 8, verse 12, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So our passage hands us, if you will, two vital truths. And the first is this. Jesus confronts human pride. Jesus confronts human pride. And you know, the metaphor of light, when you think about it, can work in all kinds of directions. Light, light carries the connotations of warmth but light also carries the connotation of exposure. And that's the kind of light that Jesus comes shining in the beginning of chapter 8. It is a light that exposes faulty, uh, pretentious religiosity. That's what he's, he's shining light on. And since Jesus is God, John 8 shouldn't surprise us because we know something about God if we keep reading the Bible. That is, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, John 8 isn't surprising at all. Jesus is God. God opposes the proud. Jesus opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's doing that. He's speaking very directly. Really, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble could be a banner that's hung over 
chapter 8 and 9 and 10. He is in confrontation. He is speaking very directly to these religious authorities. Just notice the direct language he uses, verse 14. You don't know where I'm from and you don't know where I'm going. Verse 14, you judge by human standards. He's saying, that's the difference between you and me. You only judge by outward appearance, not so with me. Verse 16, the Father sent me. And verse 18, and the Father approves this message. And then what do they do? They, they question him in verse 19. They say, produce this Father. Where is this, this Father? Well, you and I both know that what's the Father that Jesus is referring to? God the Father. <laughs> the, the Father. Like the capital F, Father. And then what does Jesus say? These are fighting words. Verse 19, you know neither me nor my Father. It's not just me who you're rejecting. You don't know me you don't know my father. Isn't it interesting, the way of Jesus with people, it's not cookie cutter. It might surprise you the way that he talks directly to some people. You know, he comes up, he walks up to people who have blown it, and what does he say to them? Your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And you're like, what? Do you know who you were just talking to? Do you know what that person's been into for the last several years of their lives? And he says, your sins are forgiven, Go in peace. And then he walks up to people with a black belt in morality, right? These, these are like the studs. These are religious leaders. These are the people in the front of the, of the church magazines. He walks up to them, and what does he say to them? You're going to die in your sin. You can't come with me. I'm going somewhere. You're not coming. It's almost shocking. Is this the same Jesus? How can he speak this way? Well, Jesus, when he pulls up to people who feel morally superior to others, what does he say? Look at verse 23. You're from below. You are of this world. That's exactly what they didn't think about themselves. He's rubbing it in their eyes. You're from here. And they're like, they're the problem in the world. He says, you're the problem. You're not hearing me. You're what's wrong with the world. You're from here. I'm not. You, you are. Verse 24. That's why I said, you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, I'm the sent one from the Father, you're going to die in your sins. There's no other option. Jesus, um, he's not waxing philosophical here. He is confronting spiritual pride. And he still confronts it today in us our moral superiority, Jesus comes after us. He's not cool with that, right? There, there is a pharisaical Christianity today that smirks when it looks at the world, that smirks when it looks at people trapped in sin. And Jesus says, hey, that's not all right. You're from here. You're inside the problem of evil, not outside the problem of evil. You're from here. And a lot of the, the pharisaicism of today, pharisaical Christianity today that smirks at sin and people trapped in sin in the world interestingly and ironically turns a blind eye to sin in its own ranks. Cover-ups. Let's act like that never happened. Let's look the other way. Let's, let's, let's release him and he can go find another church somewhere else. It's covering up sin in its own ranks. So God, keep us from this. God, keep us from public morality that masks private immorality. God, keep us from raising our children to be little Pharisees who have all the outward trappings of purity and righteousness, but their hearts have never tasted the grace of God. They've never clung in desperation to the mercy of Jesus. God, help us. God, keep us from being aggressive in politics and apathetic in our worship.
God, keep us from being more proficient at denouncing the culture than welcoming the broken. These things are not gone. They're still here. Pharisees still live, and they might be in this room. We might be in this room, and we scatter when light pours in. We don't want him to say what he says, but he says it just the same because he confronts pride. And why does he confront pride? Because nothing contradicts the gospel more. Nothing is more missionally disastrous than smug Christianity. A church that sneers at a dying world. Look, let's remember the story. Jesus doesn't love us because we're so awesome. I'm making you write that. <laughs> Jesus doesn't love us because we're so awesome. He didn't come to earth because we were so morally attractive, he couldn't stay away. Like, how can I stay away from you guys? You're so beautiful. I just had to be closer to you, like a moth to flame. You know, I'm drawn to your moral attractiveness. That is not the story of the gospel. It's the opposite story. He had to die for us or we were toast. He had to absorb the wrath of God or we were done. Right? The, the religious elite, then and now, you know, they thought, Okay, so when Messiah does come, here's how we'll know. He's going to nestle up to us. That's how we'll know he's here. He's going to hear our long, flowing, theologically nuanced prayers, and he's going to say, there they are. There's my people. They're, he's going to see our, our kind of haughty detachment from the culture and from the world, and he's going to say, I know that sneer. That's my people, right? That's what, that's what they thought. And instead, what does Jesus come and say? <laughs> he says, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for people who think they're righteous. I came for sinners. Show me where the sinners are. Show me where the immoral people who can't pull their act together, show me where they are. That's why every day when Jesus is walking through the pages of the Gospels, it's Christmas for sinners. <laughs> they absolutely love it. Because he comes for the poor and the powerless and the broken and the outcast and the sinful and the tax collector and he walks up to them and he wants to dine with them. He wants to be with them. He wants to speak to them. He wants to give them mercy. He wants to put the stones down. Right? This is, this is Jesus. This is the savior of the world. Maybe when you hear that Jesus came for those who couldn't pull their act together, maybe you actually realize, maybe for the first time this morning, wait, that describes me. So wait, Jesus came for me? Yes. Jesus came for you. He came for me. I love the song that we've been singing these past couple weeks because it explicitly says, bring all your failures. Bring your addictions. Come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. What a picture that is. You know, we saw this in John chapter 4 when we looked at it a few, week, a few weeks ago. There's this shame-ridden woman and she's walking up at the hottest part of the day to come get water at the well, and there's Jesus sitting there, and he is all eagerness. He sees her carrying this empty jar, and he can't wait. He's two sentences into the conversation before he says, you asked me for water, I'm giving it. Now his yes is on the table. You just, just ask me for water, and I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> the eagerness of Jesus in salvation, his yes is on the table. It's, it's on the table this morning. Maybe some of you this morning, you're just realizing, wait, he came, he came for people like me. I've, I've been walking in darkness. I know this. I feel like God is a million miles away from me, and he came for me, and Jesus' yes is on the table. Believe in me. 
It's why I died on the cross. I died to take your sin on myself and to give you my righteousness. I can wrap you in a robe, covers your moral nakedness for all your days. I'll give it to you now. Just ask me. I'll give it to you. <laughs> that's, that's the Savior of the world. <laughs> you know, almost exactly 100 years before my birthday, back in 1876, the church started singing these words, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness right here. The cross of Jesus Christ is good news. Pharisees didn't want to hear it though. Right? We don't need a handout. No thanks. Those people could use it. Not us. We're not God's charity case. Friend, if you believe yourself to be above the charity of God, you're going to die in your sin. There's no other way. You trust in Jesus and his atoning blood, which had to be shed for you as well as anyone else, or you're going to die in your sins. For all who believe in Jesus, here's something that's uniformly taught throughout the New Testament. As God, Jesus has a right to command our obedience. He has a right to command our obedience. Yeah, I love verse 30. See verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. That's so interesting to me because he's been saying really hard things, the kinds of things that disperse crowds. And yet, it's drawing them forward. The, the truth is setting them free. They want to come closer to Jesus. Hard sayings of Jesus have a way of sifting crowds. Right? Well, why did Jesus speak in parables? He tells the answer. Because parables are provocative. Parables pull you closer or drive you further away. Parables are people movers. You're not going to stay still. You're either going to come closer because you've got to hear more or you're going to be driven away because you're too proud to hear more. He spoke in parables. He was provocative. He used language that moved people. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Those are hard words, but not everybody heckled. It says, many believed. Let me ask you this question. What do you do with the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ? I mean the unpopular ones in our culture. I had a conversation with a man some time back and got to know him a little bit, found out his name. He's a sharp guy, affable, easy to talk to, good sense of humor, probably mid-30s, and we're talking, and I, in the course of conversation, I asked him, so do you have faith? Do you have any kind of faith? I just thought there's an open-ended question to see, you know, if that leads somewhere. And he said, yeah, actually, I do have faith. I'm a Christian. And I'm like, oh, Awesome. I'm a Christian, so I have faith in Jesus Christ as well. So then at that point, the conversation is, okay, I'll get to talk to a Christian. And I said, so what does your Christianity mean, mean to you? And in that moment, what, all I'm doing is I'm just thinking, hey, let's share our stories. Like, let's share what our faith means to us. And I said, tell me more about what your faith in Christ means to you. And he says, um, he said, it's an interesting question because I don't believe the way that I was taught when I was a kid. I, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I believe he is my Messiah. I don't believe that he is everyone's Messiah. I think there are many ways to God. 
And I said, so I've had conversations with many people, friends, family, who, who believe that, but most of the people who believe that, that I bump into, um, they're not Christians. They believe there are many ways, but they don't believe that their Messiah is Jesus. So the interesting thing that I just, can I probe that a little bit? I just said, the interesting thing is you, you say your Messiah is Jesus, and Jesus is my Messiah, so our Messiah is Jesus. So does our Messiah get to tell us what to believe? And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, what if I could take you to places in the Gospels where our Messiah tells us there are no other Messiahs? Does our Messiah get to speak for himself? Because our Messiah said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Our Messiah said, I'm the door. You want to get to heaven, you got to walk through me. you got to believe in me. Our Messiah says here in this text, if you do not believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. That's our Messiah talking. There's a lot of confusion about Christianity and religion and discipleship, especially where we live. There's a lot of confusion about Christianity and discipleship. Jesus couldn't be more clear. Verse 31, you might want to star it. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Who is he saying that to? The people who just believed in verse 30. Many believed, and he says, okay, let's see if your belief holds. Let's see if that faith is genuine faith. Because if you continue in my word, you're the real deal. You got the gift of faith to believe. That's what happened. Friends, and this will be the most uncontroversial statement you could say in a room full of followers of Jesus. But here it is. Jesus has the right to define the terms of discipleship. He has the right to determine, right? That, that's part of the confrontation that's going on all over the Gospels and that's taking place here in John 8. Jesus confronts human pride. Here's the second truth this text hands us. Jesus leads his followers into freedom. That's such good news. Jesus leads his followers into freedom. Um, there's a game that I have played with my kids on our... Um, old school Wii consoles, so the little, you know, white tower, a Wii game system, and the game that goes back, and we've been playing it for years and years, is called Super Smash Brothers, and it is as awesome as it sounds. If you've never played it before, it's, it's amazing, right? And you get to choose all these different characters, and four people at the same time can all be fighting in this universe that you've created or whatnot, and everybody's going at it. So I can do battle against all three of my kids. And it's like every man for himself. We're dropping like flies and we're just doing battle in Super Smash. And I, <laughs> so I choose a character named Pit, who is a kind of an angelic creature uh, with, with wings. And, and you can fly around and kind of makes this fing, 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 this fing, fing sound. And, and Pit has a bow and arrow. So you can just shoot these bow and arrows. And I have an approach that I... Uh, I'll say sometimes, they say always, my approach in the game is to choose Pit, and as soon as the fight breaks out and there's a war going on, I'll kind of do my fing, 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 and I'll fly over to the edge of the screen, and I'll just launch arrows down on them while they're fighting. So I'm not in the midst of it, but I'm taking points away from every single one of them. You can direct your arrow exactly to where you, you need to, it to go. And then they'll get so annoyed and so, they're like, Dad! 
And then they come over to try to get me. I'm sitting on this cloud over here, and they come over to get me, and I'll go, fing, 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 fing. I go to the other side of the stage, and then I'm launching arrows from the other side. I'm just going at it, and they're like, that is so annoying. I'm like, it's called the road to victory. Like, find an answer. I'm just going to keep bringing that, right, until you find an answer. The, the awkward pivot of that particular illustration is this. Satan has the same general approach, <laughs> right? That is basically, he sets up somewhere, and he's just, pss, 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 just launching arrows from over, just taking points off, just launching arrows at us from all directions. Then you go after him over here, and he's just, fling, 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 goes over to the other side, and he's launching arrows. And one of the arrows that he loves to launch, one of his biggest lies, is this. You will never be free. And he's just, he's just launching that sucker all day long. You're never going to be free. It works for everybody else, not you. And he keeps sending that arrow until we find an answer. And Jesus stands in John 8, and he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You can be free. There's an answer. We need a shield, don't we? <laughs> Ephesians 6 style, we need a shield that can deflect the arrows and lies of the enemy. So I want us to close by looking at three truths that lead us to enjoy the freedom that Jesus wants for us. Number one, we have power from God. With power from God to fight sin. It's not what it used to be. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I know this is going to make your head spin. Hold on to your seat. It's better when I leave. It's better when I leave because when I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. The law of God's not going to sit on a tablet somewhere and tell you what to do. Law's moving in. The Holy Spirit is moving inside. He's going to move furniture around. He's going to give you a whole new power source, a whole new operating system, and it's on the inside. you got new power for change, new power for life, new power to fight anger and lust and addiction, right? New power. That's why the Apostle Paul, he's writing in the book of Romans, he's talking about how do you grow? He says this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God, I love this, and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Now this is why the hymn was written, Take My Life and Let It Be, and it just goes through and catalogs all of the parts of our body. Take my Lips, take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take my hands, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Just walking through and saying, what's on me and how can it be used in the service of my new king? That's discipleship. That's Christianity. The Holy Spirit takes up residence inside. You know, in this passage, Jesus is continually linking newfound faith to freedom, and he's also connecting freedom to God's word. Look at it with me, verse 31. If you continue in my word, so brand new believers, continue in my word, and you really are my disciples. Look at verse 47. The one who is from God listens to God's words. Look at verse 52. 
if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Keep my word. Continue in my word. The one who is from God listens to the word, to God's word. Now, this is why if you grew up in church, one of the first verses you perhaps ever memorized as a child is, I have hidden your word in my heart so that what? So that I might not sin against you. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word. Romans chapter 12, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's Paul riffing on the same idea. You'll know the truth. The truth is going to remap stuff. It's going to rewire stuff. The truth is going to set you free. Why the first of our eight pursuits, so we talk about eight pursuits as a church, why is the first one we abide biblically? Because Jesus said, if my words abide in you and you abide in my words, you're going to bear much fruit. Look at the tree in Psalm 1. It's always bearing fruit. Why? Because it's located right next to the rivers of water. It represents the person who's meditating on the law of God day and night. And so you're always bearing fruit not because you're conjuring it up, you got bootstraps, because you're planted by the word of God. It's an awesome, awesome thing, God's word. We, we want God's word not just so that we can have, you know, theological debates with one another. We want God's word because Jesus says, I've got something for everyone who continues in my word. What is it? Freedom. <laughs> You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. You want this. Come get my word because you want freedom. We have power from God too. We have guidance from God. We have guidance from God. So John 8 takes place against the backdrop of a period of time that happened each year at this time of year called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this pointed all the way back to the story of the Exodus when God set his people free from Egyptian slavery and he brings them out into the wilderness and they're living in booths, they're living in tents. So at this time of year, everybody makes pilgrimage to Jerusalem and up go tents. Every direction you looked in in Jerusalem at this time during this week, you saw tents all over the place because they were remembering. Remember when we lived in those tents? Our ancestors lived in tents. God guided them through the wilderness. And there would be, in the, the whole week of the Feast of Booths, torches would be lit every evening, reminding the people, remember that big pillar of fire that led us through the darkness? Led our ancestors through deep darkness. And, and it was reminding them of that reality. These evening fires, every night, these evening fires represented God's faithful guidance of his people then and now. They're saying, light the fires because the God who was faithful is faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So light the torches every night and remember, God will take you through darkness. He will guide you through darkness. The Lord has guided some of you through thick darkness, deep trials. Some of you have that story. And yet, I wonder if I'm alone. You have a story of God leading you faithfully through darkness, and then you're up against a new darkness, and what do you do? You doubt. Like, this is a whole new scenario. This is a whole new darkness, and we doubt that the one who took us through our last darkness is going to take us through this one, and that's why they said, light the fires every night. It's the Feast of Booths. 
remember, he's still taking us through fire. He's never going to let us go. Christian friend, for all the uncertainty that's ahead of us in 2020, this is sure. You will not walk alone. He will be with us. He will guide us faithfully. That's why he says this promise in Psalm 23, goodness and mercy are tracking you every day of your life. If I can talk to teenagers for a second. So we're talking about how 2020 stretches out in front of us. Your, your whole life stretches out in front of you. There it is, right? Filled with potential and promise. Years and years out before you. And I could just urge you, follow Jesus. Cling to his word. Cling to the old road, right? Let his word guide you. Don't recede into darkness as if you haven't seen what you've seen. You've seen it. Don't recede. Don't go back into darkness. Continue in his word and so prove to be his disciple. That Jesus, he has, he has true freedom. He has true and lasting joy and he supplies it to all who faithfully follow him. And the third is this. We have a mission from God. We have a mission from God to shine his lights in the world. We have a mission from God to proclaim the gospel right here in our city, in our neighborhoods. We have a mission from God to carry this gospel to the ends of the earth. Some of our students, we prayed for them a moment ago. They're taking this gospel to the nations right now. It's awesome. Where will you take this gospel in the world, in our city and among the nations this year? We're called a mission. We remind ourselves of it Sunday after Sunday. There were, um, at the Feast of Booths, there were two great historic traditions and ceremonies that were associated. One was called, was a ritual called the water drawing. And that would take place during this week. Matter of fact, in John 7, last chapter, here's what it says. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Jesus speaks at this, in this very week where they have the water drawing ritual and he says, I'm the water. He loves to do this. We've seen it time and time again. Well, that's not the only ceremony that marked this particular week. There was another ceremony every evening through the whole week of the Feast of Booths and that ceremony was called the Illumination of the Temple. So in the great sprawling court of the temple, there were four massive lamps. These lamps were huge, right? So when you come in, you see the construction that's going on outside. You see these big stone columns, right? They're huge. They're massive. They're heavy. They're 28 feet tall. Well, imagine taking one of those columns and stacking another one and then another one because these columns were 75 feet tall. These were gigantic candles, and they had at the top of them a bowl, and they'd fill the bowl with oil, and every night somebody would get on a ladder and light those suckers, and four of them would just blaze in brightness, and you'd see the brightness on the faces of all the people in the whole town of Jerusalem. You could see the light on their faces. So you have this city 
set literally on a hill. Jerusalem is surrounded by valleys on three sides. You got a city set on a hill, and then you got 75 foot towers of fire every night. And you could see as far as the eye could see, villages all around for miles and miles saw the light burning from Jerusalem. What a glorious picture of mission that is light pouring forth from the city of God. And to read the tradition is to find out what was going on in the city. You know what was going on? It wasn't just lights and fire and lamps. Right there in the court, it said this, the Levites danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. Countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and instruments of music. This went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles with the light from the temple shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. And that's what's happening every night, the week Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, what a picture of God's mission. Jesus, the light of the world, shining for all to see. His people rejoicing before him and worshiping, carrying their own burning torches in their hands. And what does Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 5? You're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. Roughly 75 feet tall is just about right. He says, put it on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. If you dig into the history, you find out that the Levites and the people were trained to sing a certain psalm on those evenings. And the psalm that they sang was Psalm 27. They're singing and dancing in the court. The Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear? Why would we keep this gospel to ourselves? We're going to encounter people all over the city and all over the world, people who have been hungry, and they want to know that Jesus is the bread. People who are thirsty, and they're waiting to know Jesus is living water. And then there are people that we're going to bump into, and they've known darkness. And the thing they most want Jesus to say is exactly what he says in John 8. I'm the light. I'm the light of the world. You follow me, you won't walk in darkness. I'm going to carry you through it all. I'm going to guide your path. Be like a flame in the middle of the night. I'll carry you to the end. This is glorious truth. There's nothing to fear. Anyone who follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life.